Kia ora and welcome to episode 70 of the Stag Roar. Before we begin this episode, I need to have a massive, massive shout out to Greg Lincoln from Media Mint in Hawke's Bay. Unfortunately, when we recorded this episode with Peter Ballasted, the audio from Peter didn't come through very well and I was absolutely heartbroken. I tried to have a play around with the audio, but with my limited YouTube learnt skills on Audacity, um, all I was really doing was just making the noise louder and louder and and still not really bringing you Peter's amazing story. So I reached out on Facebook and Greg offered his skills and what an amazing job he's done. Um, I will warn you that the quality is still not exceptional, but at least we can hear the amazing things that Peter has to say. Of course, Greg's listened all the way through the podcast and he was really impressed and really enjoyed it. So, you know, if a sound engineer who's listening through with a fine-tooth comb trying to get the best audio we possibly can get says it's great, well, then, um, yeah, you know you're in for a treat. And anybody who follows Peter on Instagram or Twitter knows that what he produces is absolutely exceptional. Um, For a lot of you out there, it'll come as a surprise at some of the data that uh, Peter brings up. I know there's a lot of things out there that get turned round and round and around and regurgitated, such as things like animal agriculture causing 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> and Peter's one of the people that pointed that out um, and, yeah, made conspiracy look a little bit like the conspiracy that it is. Another shout-out, of course, goes to Mark Cluer. He's going to be in the Gold Coast soon. And so you just might see me there at this Gold Coast event. It's going to be held um, on Sunday the 14th of April between 10 and 1 p.m. Australian Eastern Time. We'll have to check in on that, whether that's Brisbane or or New South Wales. (laughs) Always confusing. Um, Must be Queensland. That's right. Saving is over. So Eastern Time. And it's going to be at Price Fitness in Corumbin, Queensland. Um, And I'll have the link to the website where you can get tickets for that. Um, should be a hell of a day. Make sure you check out Mark's episode that we did. Um, also, our last episode with Zane, you know, give you an idea of how much of a legend Mark is because Zane spent a big amount of time with Mark in a caravan traveling around Australia. Right, anyway, that's enough out of me because this episode is awesome. It's a lot to take in and it's time, it's time to get into it. So enjoy this episode with Peter Ballastead. Stick it through because it's absolutely epic. Cheers. Kia ora, everybody. This is an absolute pleasure. I've got Peter Ballastead. Did I say that right? You did. Wonderful. Um, who is a agronomist and a uh, meat industry researcher or meat agricultural researcher? I'm a, I'm a, forage, I'm a forage agronomist. Um, and a ruminant nutritionist That's by training. Yeah. Um, but I've developed a real interest and uh, done a bit of study in the area of diet health and human nutrition, especially as uh, animal products impact that. Wonderful. And before we dive deep, because it's going to be a deep dive and a little bit of a challenge to a lot of people, so we'll, we'll take things slow and, and you're great at explaining things. So. There'd be no problem there getting it, the message across. But we've been talking in the week because we didn't know if this was going to align for the time frame today. And, and you were more more on the coast of, of Oregon and you sent me a wonderful photo. What, what have you been up to? 
Yeah, I was just up in the northwest uh, corner of the state, essentially, in a town called Tillamook, where we have a lot of um, pasture-based, grass-based berries, a lot of confinement as well. And so we were talking to some very Lovely. And one of the things um, that often comes up is nutritional science, and we put we put uh, quotations around that. What stumbled you across that maybe the information out there is not a full picture and might be generalised far, far too much? And when it comes to an individual, um, there might be some different choices that you might need to make. What what sparked that interest for you coming from your own area of research? Well, so basically um, the short version is that in 2007, um, I finally realized that I was a uh, 51-year-old balding obese pre-diabetic. And um, then I started reading some books and blogs and what have you, got introduced to many people that you would recognize, and basically reversed all those conditions. Um, <laughs> by following diet, it's essentially 180 degrees different from what we've been told is a healthy diet. So in the course of kind of going through that process, I started to get kind of first mad because industries I've been trained to support have been um, uh, slandered. They've been blamed for chronic diseases or meat consumption causes cancer, meat consumption causes heart disease. Full fat dairy makes you fat, which is diabetes, and the more I read, more I experienced personally, I just became convinced that that just wasn't true. And then I started trying to help people understand that as well as some of the realities about how our food is produced. Um, because I think there's a certain kind of pathology involved in that. Yes? Yeah. Um, and I heard, I heard you talk on Sean that you, your wife was sort of edging you in the right way. <laughs> oh, well, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, basically she started on the journey about five years before I did. And so basically, um, but she was wise enough to know that, well, her approach was to say, this is what I'm going to eat. What would you like to eat? <laughs> um, so rather than, you know, try to force somebody into doing something they're not ready to. Um, and then five years after she got started, I basically got realized that what I was doing wasn't working. The weight was just steadily increasing. And then these other, I learned about something called pre diabetes And yeah, that sounds like what, that sounds like me. No, I don't want to go into diabetes, so... I've found books like uh, Protein Power, mm -hmm. Michael Mary Van Eads, um, and, and Gary Taub's book, uh, Calories, Bad Calories, came out like next year or so. And so very quickly, these resources became available. Lovely. Um, and so what was your paradigm prior to that? Um, was it 
grain-based or, you know, you, you work with ruminants. How, how did the two of those fit together in, in your sort of paradigm of, of what food is? Well, I guess they really didn't fit together well because I believe that low-fat, I believe the, you know, the, the pasta and the bread and the, the you know, the chicken, those were, and then, you know, watch how much you eat, you know, those sorts of things um, were the key to making progress when I came convinced pretty quickly. Yeah, and so I guess you're one of the one of the lucky ones because you know it's always said that if you can capture somebody in this pre-diabetic realm, and, and even better if you could catch them before then, before the, the, the blood sugar gets into an arbitrary figure, if you can catch them when their markers are starting to go a little bit a well, that you've got the best chance of of motivation. Like you said, you didn't want to enter that pre uh, into the diabetic category. Um, do you have any sort of comment of that about what your motivation was like at that stage? Um, well, <laughs> part of it was the 36-inch waist jeans were getting tight, so I was going to have to get some bigger ones, and I really didn't want to go that way. And, and I, I wasn't happy with how I felt. And um, then as I learned about the relationship between the pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and my um, increased risk for a whole number of diseases. Um, I'd like to not go down that path if I can avoid it. Uh, there's a history of cancer in my family. I'd rather not go that way if I can um, avoid it. So these things, and, and part of the experience of anyone who's tried um, some of the low-fat, low-calorie, you know, exercise, whatever, they are likely to have found s small results that didn't last for very long. Mm. Not for much, not for long, or any kind of short version. And I certainly had, you know, I'd lose a pound, I'd gain two, I'd lose two, I'd gain another one back, you know, kind of bouncing around and, and not really making any progress. And then there's the question of what was happening with blood sugar was tending to go up, the HDL cholesterol was going down. So all of those were pretty marginal uh, markers for me. And, and again, I, I wanted to avoid what was completely predictable in terms of coming attractions, you should say, um, likely outcomes and, and negative health. Yeah, and I, I think for me, it's when somebody comes in and they've been diabetic ten years and they've still got a A1C in the uh, in Australia, they use the old unit, so five or five or even in the low sixes. I sort of say, well, you're doing all right, you know, and, and you're still on just metformin, so that's okay. And, and hey, you might actually be protecting yourself from a few other things by taking that metformin, but you know. The, it's such a revelation to them that hey, they don't actually need to go down that track of ten years or fifteen years. Things basically pack up and and leave, and and you're left with a whole bunch of greater health problems. And to tell them that diabetes is reversible, um, that that excitement comes back to their eyes. So, was that ever told to you? Diabetes is reversible. Uh, no, no, and and you know, since I never got to that stage, I never was subjected to that kind of 
quote unquote education. Um, <laughs> so, and, and frankly, I've gotten tired of talking with some healthcare people. Um, it's almost like one period copy of you know why we live had one about it or one of the other many excellent books into the exam room into heavy rims. Okay. Read this and then I'll go back. Um, you know, I've, I've had some frustrating conversations. Um, we have a system in the United States where certain uh, health uh, insurance firms will have programs with health coaching. And so you fill out the form with the numbers you know, tell them what you eat, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get a phone call in a little while from somebody that's going to tell you what you need to do to improve your health. Mm -hmm. And I try to remember that this is probably something, somebody working for minimum wage in a call center doing this work. So I'll try not to abuse them too much, but I, I try to get them to put some note in the file about please update your information. It doesn't reflect current science. Um, so some of that, you know, it, it's just, I, I, I could do without that frustration, but maybe it'll do some good. Yeah. And on the flip side, it, the, the venture capital side of things, we've got Verita Health, which is going along with and creating some of the new science and that, that feedback mechanism is not what I recall. I ate this week. It's all oh, your blood sugar has gone up. Your ketones have gone down. How are you feeling? How did you sleep? Um, what did you have for dinner yesterday? What did you have for lunch yesterday? What exercise did you do? You know, it, it's so much more tapped in and, and it's going to be an interesting model to see how far that can go. But now we're already seeing some insurers jump on board and the, the um, business insurance doesn't have to pay if the results aren't there. So, you know, they're, they're confident. <laughs> And, and um, the results have been so encouraging. Like you said, it, it, it's reversible. It's, it's a condition that doesn't, well, what does Dr. Unwin talk about? Lifestyle medicine versus lifelong medication. Yeah. You know, here's your choice. Which would you like? Yeah. And, and as he says, no, nobody offers that choice. I mean, nobody presents it as, okay, I'm going to start you on a course of medication. That you're probably going to be on an increasing, you know, um, series of pre prescriptions for the rest of your life, and you know, it's life isn't going to be oh, oh, or you could <laughs> do this, um, which again involves eating foods that you've been told not to eat, and you know, maybe developing the habit of a little physical activity and, and hey presto you, you might find that that condition no longer requires treatment um, it's if, it, it seems to me that medicine has gotten very very good at treating the acute condition so I'm very grateful that if I were to break my leg or get in an accident that you know there's uh, crisis care available to treat that do that very well um, We've done a good job infectious disease controls, and, and that's marvelous. Um, you know, you, you read about some of the experience that people had of some kind of disease coming in and wiping out families. Just you know, it, it's what happened. Um, that's not part of what we 
we're not so good at dealing with the chronic illness. Mm-hmm. And, and that's currently chronic illnesses are the, are the largest killer of humans in the world by a long way. Yeah, and you know, that's an, another great piece of uh, content you put up the other day on your Instagram and Twitter was that graph of all these things that we've managed to curtail and then, oh, there's lifestyle med- diseases way up and, you know, diabetes is creeping up and, and, you know, heart disease is still a long way off. But if you talk to people like David or, or Ivor Cummins, you know, maybe the insulin resistance is behind this and it, it's just an earlier manifestation and, 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 hey, if we can curtail one, we might be curtailing the others. It certainly makes sense to me. Um, I use that analogy of uh, a rain barrel, you know, like a wooden barrel that has different length staves. Um, so the short stave of the barrel is the one that's going to set the volume of that barrel. Can't hold any more water than the shortest stave. I learned that first in soil fertility. Um, so the idea is if phosphorus is limiting, then putting on a bunch of nitrogen isn't going to do you any good. It might actually do you some harm. Certainly is going to cost you money. It's, it's not um, applying your resources to the limiting factor. And I think that hyperinsulinemia at this point, insulin resistance, those are the short staves in our public health. And um, until we, somebody can about species appropriate there uh, why don't we eat grass because <laughs> we're not ruminants yeah. um, because um, a couple reasons one is grass is um, primarily fiber and uh, various um, carbohydrates structural carbohydrates and, and we are not equipped to digest those uh, we don't and nor does any other vertebrate produce cellulase, which is the enzyme necessary to break apart the glucose units that are linked together that make up cellulose. Um, And then we could also spend a little time talking about the nitrogen-containing compounds that are in grass are mostly not protein. Um, Now, ruminant, on the other hand, is a 
uh, technically it's a pre-gastric fermenter. Um, it has a multi-compartmented stomach. It can ingest this high fiber, low protein and poor quality protein diet. It hosts a multitude, billions of bacteria, uh, fungi, protozoa that live within this oxygen free environment anaerobic environment. So in that environment, that plant material ferments. It also gets rechewed periodically. They bring up a cud, they chew it, they re-swallow it. So that's the fermentation process. Um, so that's breaking down that material and building it pass out of that first two compartments of the ruminants uh, stomach digestive system. Um, unlike ours, which is a flow through theirs has to get broken down sufficiently before it can leave. So that's a mechanical, that's a, a microbiological process. <laughs> At the same time, those there, there are sugars and starches that are part of grass or any other forage. So the fiber and then those non-structural carbohydrates get converted by the microorganisms used for their own energy, but they also produce volatile fatty acids. Those volatile fatty acids are absorbed by the host animal, the cow, the sheep, the deer. And what ends up happening is a cow eats a diet that might be, well, it has to be certainly less than six, some say less than 5% crude fat as a diet, total diet. Mm. Um, and yet 70 or 80% of our energy is going to come from those volatile fatty acids that are formed in the rumen as part of that breakdown of the fiber entirely by the microorganisms. The, pro, the, the nitrogenous materials that come in, the microorganisms will eat and use those to build more of themselves. So they make microbial protein out of those materials. And then the microbes are themselves digested by the host animal. So the, the, the really important ecological niche, if you compared us or other monogastrics to a ruminant, um, there are essential amino acids in our diet or in any other monogastrics diet. There's no such thing as an essential amino acid in the ruminant's diet. That's a really important ecological function, is they can use that non-protein nitrogen that in, in some plant foods can be almost half of the protein uh, is, is actually a non-protein nitrogen sources. Um, the ruminants can take that through this microbial process and digest the microbes themselves form um, There are um, essential fatty acids in monogastric diet or diet, um, but apparently there's not in the ruminant diet. Um, and then there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate in, in our diet. Um, there are two forms that are essential for you have to have both the structural and the non-structural. They have to have fiber. They also have to have sugars and starches and other non-structural carbohydrates in their diet and root from the root
So there's this wonderful relationship, this, this meshing, and it makes sense that the grasses are some of the oldest plants, the grasslands, ruminants evolved, and take advantage of those. Um, the center of origin for many of the ruminants is in Africa. Um, and they were able to utilize the grassland resource as a food reserve, food resource. And then human beings ultimately uh, come on the scene, act as endurance hunters initially, utilizing the ruminants as a food resource. So I think it's something like 20 million years ago, um, the six existing ruminant families were essentially existing. Um, and then took a long time for humans to show up. So there's this this wonderful meshing, and, and one of the arguments is, well, if we got rid of ruminants, we'd have all this more food to feed humans. And it's just not true. Um, it, 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 the, the ruminant animals are increasing the quantity and the quality of humanity's food supply. Mm. And I've, I've just come in from crushing up some eggs and my eggshells on my garden and I've been putting remaining bone broth bones and, and whatever little fatties and, and, and chicken meat that was left over from, from that mix in my garden and I've turned this sandy little box of of sand basically and, and stones into this um, brown and beautiful moisture holding soil that's produced um, some spinach and lettuce and, and basil which when I first looked at it, I thought that'll never grow and it's too hot here and, and, and it's, it's almost going to seed now that we've been away for a fortnight. Um, you speak about the, you know, what's the limiting factor of your soil and then this amazing biodiversity that comes from a ruminant stomach and, and then eventually will end up on the land and, and, you know, you see things like mushrooms sprouting up and, and like we used to have some sheep where we used to live and at certain times of the year to build these mushrooms across across the paddock and how not only is, is the ruminant allowing us to progress as a species but it's also allowing the planet in that certain area that's being grazed and turned over to, to thrive again and turn over again and um, that was one of the arguments or well, not arguments considerations I had when in New Zealand they were looking at culling a large number of tar, tar and they were sort of saying that it was threatening this um, it's called the Mount Cook Daisy, the species that grows in the high country. And ironically, one of the hunting shows put up this photo of a massive mob of tar and all these um, Mount Cook Daisies. So, it, you know, it's not a complete picture, is it? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the grasses as a plant uh, have a rather unique structure and basically grassland to remain productive and healthy either gets grazed or it gets burnt. Yeah. I think grazing is a better option. Um, <laughs> and and that builds or, or, or and certainly maintains and we're getting data showing depending on the condition, surprising increases in soil carbons and soil organic matter. It's organic matter that holds far more moisture um, per unit weight than the mineral component of soils. Um, acts as a tremendous um, uh, reservoir for uh, positively charged uh, uh, elements in the soil. So the 
of fertility. Um, and then we're learning more and more about all the micro and, and macro biological life that takes place within the soil in the upper sections. So um, we, in the United States, we've had a period of, um, well, I, I, I visited one state recently, uh, back in mid-January, um, North Dakota, and the history of farming there goes back 120 years, maybe something like that, um, and it was prairie, people came in, the, the first settlers, um, European settlers, basically survived by collecting bones off the prairie and taking them to railheads where they'd be hauled off to Chicago and processed. And, and um, as a result of this visit, I got introduced to soil fertility professor from Dakota State University who gave this talk the history of phosphorus and export from North Dakota. Um, what they're able to show is, is the, the first settlers came in and they only knew how to farm when they farmed back east or in Europe. And, and, and they had, you know, primitive seeding equipment. They had not adapted varieties. They had no fertilizer. They came in, they, they just beat up the, 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 the sod, worked it down until it it was just a very fine, powdery soil. They seeded their wheat into that. Well, there was significant wind, in, in, and, and so they started having wind erosion almost immediately. Um, when they were able to harvest a yield, according to this um, presentation, he was saying that the yields reported from then were not that different from an average yield today, hmm. with all the advances that um, back in the 50s and 60s, we did we, a lot of work with undeveloped soils on the United States. And they can now go back to those same sites where they originally characterized that soil and look at it. And so, we talk about layers in the soil profile. So, the A horizon is the very top, most organic matter. Um, then horizon and then down to the sea horizon and that is usually barren material. So something to give you an idea. And and then you go to these same places and see top of the sea horizon is now 19 inches closer to the soil surface than it was back in the 60s or 50s characterized mm. soil. So what it means is they've lost all that soil due to wind erosion, due to oxidation of organic matter, water erosion, what have you. They've, they've lost that much material. And they, he said that if they can get to zero soil loss and continue current phosphate application rates, it would take them 200 years to catch up to where they were in terms of fertility level in so, but whatever we're going to do to produce food is going to have an impact on it. Just us being there has an impact on the environment. Um, 
might have to have some form of agriculture. I'm making the argument that without ruminants uh, in our agricultural system, we can't have sustainable agricultural systems without ruminants. Um, we can't feed today's world without ruminant animal agriculture. And ruminant animal agriculture actually has advantages over forms of food production. And that's before we've ever really taken on board. Well, is our animal products more valuable in our diet than the plant products? So should that guide going to produce? Um, some of the conversations and the arguments and discussions happen around things like sustainability. Um, unfortunately, sustainability is still informed by the individual wisdom of the one. What a healthy diet looks like. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they have yet to allow the whole conversation about metabolic illness and the enormous cost that that has on society. To the, that has not yet been brought into the conversation. So we're learning more about greenhouse gas emissions. We're learning more about carbon sequestration. And as we learn more, we actually find that, you know, even, even just looking at that, that if we would look at actual essential nutrient production rather than pounds or uh, bushels or what have you, and, and look at the footprint in terms of essential nutrients, ends up being similar to the impact of crop. Mm. So that's before we've ever gotten to this vision of, of our health in terms of the world state. So I think that as we do more and more of this, we'll see more and more that no, in fact, what we need is we need more agriculture. We need better management of our grasslands. We need to reintegrate grazing animals into our cropping systems. We're seeing more and more of that happening. We're seeing more interest in um, agroforestry systems where we can grow grass and trees on the same ground and of course we're going to graze the, the grass um, and even in parts that I got to visit Brazil in June and what I saw there is they're not just doing grass and trees they're also then going to come in every once in a while and take the grass out and grow soybeans mm. and so so now they have a cropping rotation in between the trees of course, they're using trees that mature very quickly. You know, it's a tropical environment. You can do wonderful things there. But they're finding if they don't keep the ground covered, their soil quality degrades very, very quickly. So it was it was interesting to see that um, integrated livestock cropping systems work that's going on there, and we can do that in many, many more places around. Yeah, and you know. It's it's not a one. It's a it's a whole picture. I know in New Zealand, a lot of the people will say, "Well, hey, we need to plant out this, these, this hill country. We need to plant this out." And then you actually look at the reality of it, and, and a lot a lot of the native forest in New Zealand is actually put aside by hill country farmers. And and, and when you go for the short rotation uh, trees, as soon as you harvest them, there's there's massive losses of soil, and you know. The water, the water 
goes brown for, for a bit because of that, that runoff and things. Um, and you mentioned at the start of that North Dakota story about collecting the bones. And I guess my perspective on life is that uh, in the bottom of New Zealand there, we've got a place uh, probably 20 minutes up the road called Lime Hills. And, and there's, a, there's a famous limestone in New Zealand called Amaru Stone, which is, is in another township. And, and it's this beautiful limestone that's been used for construction. But again, the lime, lime works are, are scattered amongst the country, probably because of how coastal it is. But, you know, if you actually, I guess, basic geology, you go back and that limestone comes from the shellfish and, and the shell bones and, and the shells themselves. And, and it's so great to be spread on, on the country. And lots of the hill country farming in New Zealand owed, is owed to the fact that we've got helicopters and and skilled plane drivers to drop lime on the hills and make make these once tussock areas green and, and, and beautiful and, and suitable or more suitable for or for sheep to and even some beef cattle to grow and prosper as opposed to maintain maintenance on, on a tussock feed. Um, what is it about this this lime that's so rewarding back to the soil and to the grass that wants to grow? Well. Um a lot of the leguminous plants, those plants that form a specialized relationship with yet another microbe that infects the roots of the plant and fixes atmospheric nitrogen. So what is it? 70 some percent of the atmosphere is, is into gas, but it's essentially inert um, as far as we're concerned. Um, these bacteria can actually convert that into a form that the plant can utilize. And because it's in the plant, it can then be available to the animals. It can then cycle through the soil until ultimately one fate of it is that it can be reconverted back into nitrogen gas and essentially meander um, the cycle that way. So the lime eases the soil pH, provides some calcium, and on sorts, but also provides some minerals. That's necessary for humans to grow and support nitrogen fixation, and then we can bring grazing animals into those areas. And by managing those animals, if you get a lot of them in an area for a relatively short period of time, then their dung and their urine gets deposited evenly, so you get even nutrient cycling. And then that favors later production, introduction of some more productive grasses. Um, the animals themselves will kind of tear up the tussock a bit and, and, and lead to more productive species coming to, to cover that area. Mm. And you spoke about legumes there. Um, one of my patients in a rural area in New Zealand, uh, deer have a pretty checkered past because they're, they're an introduced species that's been classed as a pest and so when it comes to farming them I think they still get the same minimal status you know chuck them on the back blocks and, and let them grow and we'll do something with when they're, when they're mature and this guy's a sheep farmer he said the most important thing for the hill country is these um, subterrane clovers and, and it goes exactly what you said there that those legumes to boost or enhance the nitrogen and, and raise that fertility. They, they also produce very high quality feed, so yeah. they, you know, animals get a lot of energy from the feed. Um, Subclover is an interesting plant, and it you know, essentially plants itself. It, it plants its seed into the ground. Uh, 
many parts of Australia for We've used some of the higher rainfall uh, lines of subclover here in Western Oregon for a long time, um, but in some places, my understanding is that where wool production, you're not really trying to on growing animals, you're just trying to maintain mature animals. You actually push the sheep part of them. They're actually eating birds. Yes. <laughs> Grazing pretty close, um, but that's another advantage of ruminant and that plant in that environment. Where really, what else can you grow? Uh, to maybe you know, dry land rotation, fallow year, try to grow cereals. Um, it's it's there's so much that's going on here, and it's so poorly appreciated by most of the consuming public. Um, some countries, New Zealand, is an area that has been of interest to me for as long as I've been introduced to forage agriculture. It may have had something to do with a major professor who was from the South Island. Um, but um, I finally got to visit. It's a wonderful place. Um, I'd love to go back. Um, they had a product in the store. And, and I don't know about that. So I didn't have lost the pictures in, but it was just a brilliant. Sorry, what was that? Brilliant. Yeah. It was just, and, and it was there in the meat case, and it just, you know, beef, hallow, and lamb, hallow, that was gear for roasting and doing whatever, but you don't see that. Oh, uh, maybe once upon a time you did, but and, and maybe in some specialty stores you can see it now where people are getting on to, you know, animal fats being okay to use in cooking um, and actually having advantages. But so I'm sitting there trying to take a picture of this and the clerk <laughs> to me, can I help you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving soon. There's no it's it's amazing you, you say that, and it, and it takes us back to the the story of of the narrative around food, and that you know, myself growing up, we used to save the pork fat, we used to you know, save the beef fat and put it in a jar and use it again, and then all of a sudden we didn't, and you know, I didn't I didn't have a clue why, but it just would have been the health narrative that hey, that's bad, and and it's amazing how quick. That market has come back to Australasia. Um, Pete Evans might have something to do with it. Uh, um, there's other plenty of people out there who are in the food industry and in this ancestral way of life and, and yeah, dripping tallow and larder again in the supermarkets. You know, there's, there's blocks of lard, there's blocks of tallow now. And I, I don't know if I'm just seeing it because I'm aware of it and maybe it was always there, but. Hey, it's it's definitely there in the supermarket now. <laughs> no, no, we we um, you know again 2007, you know 2002 when Nancy started. Um, there's a lot more options available to us today than there were then, and we've gone through you know a bit of an evolution in terms of, of our diet and what we try to eat. You know, so um, it's it's actually traveling is getting easier. For me, I travel a lot. Eating on the road is, you know, it's it's not that big a problem for me to just get, you know, the steak 
no, I don't want the potato. Please don't bring the bread. You know, kind of you, you, no sides. Well, you got some bacon you can throw on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they cop the bacon on the. It's like, well, dang, I'll do this a couple more. Um, you know, so and and I am finding more and more people are aware uh, of you know you could mention a keto diet and even corn or low carb certainly. Atkins is the one that. Most people would have heard of if they've heard of our diet. So the information is there. Unfortunately, we still keep pushing back for whatever reasons. Um, trying to say, oh, go ahead and hair grow the palms of your hands or something. I, um, but slowly but surely, I think more and more people have a personal experience. And then that ripples out you know, to a wider audience. So, uh, I'm actually quite optimistic, although every once in a while I'll get a little, you know, down on every meat. You know, who's, you know, who's promoting lab meat now, or who's, you know, the impossible burger, or whatever that is. Um, one of the things that I, I try to, and this is, this is a message for us all today, I think, is that, um, I think people don't put enough value on their own personal health. And so they'll, you know, think about, you know, okay, well, I've heard this, this diet where I eat more animal products is good, but what about the environmental, you know, whatever? And it's like, that's, that's the wrong conversation. It's, I mean, we can deconstruct those and pull them apart, but we're talking about your health. <laughs> you know, if you're a father with children, the worst thing that can happen to your children is to lose you prematurely, right? Um, you know, value your health. And, and as we get better, we can then go about doing things to improve the world. And, and I do say that when you improve your own health, you are improved. Um, you're, you're doing it starting with yourself, which is really what we can do. And then we can go looking for other areas that we can make meaningful impacts. Uh, a friend of mine says that Americans love the idea of saving by shopping. <laughs> this idea. You know, if we buy this product that's got this on the label or whatever, that somehow that's going to make a meaningful difference. And yeah, uh, you know, you, you can fill in the joke here for Americans, but um, maybe it would be better for us to learn what it is we should be eating, buy what's affordable to us, and go looking for projects for us to get involved with to make meaningful direct impact, rather than this idea of, you know, becoming virtuous by the brand we buy. So, um, yeah. Consumer capitalist driven society, uh, yeah, we can save by what, uh, what's the sort of thing, but you can make a, a value and impactful choice. And, you know, it's all marketing, which of course is public relations, which have actually began from propaganda. So, <laughs> you know, that, no, that, that piece of knowledge is valuable to know that what you're being marketed to is actually being is propaganda. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's the comment of or the, 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 the title greenwashing. Yes. Right. Well, all you have to do is call it sustainable. Yeah. And, you know, that, oh, okay, that, that, that's great. That just, you know, it's a mantra that you can 
like a mantle you can pull on and now be virtuous. I was walking around our supermarket, you know, there's a big thing about local food and what have you. The the market they they have like a canned music in mm. the store and never once a month at and, and so this ad is talking about her locally sourced ingredients. And I was going, did I just hear that? And so I waited until it came around in the rotation. Here, yeah, yeah, he said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I want the galactically sourced ingredients. I'm not going to settle for these global. <laughs> Who thought that was a good idea? But then you could take a step back and, and who? Who got us to call them vegetable oils? Yes. That's marketing. And then, because vegetables are good for you. So we'll call them vegetable oil. Corn oil, soybean oil. Those are, you know, those are industrial oils. It's canola. I mean, even, even olive oil or avocado oil is a fruit. Right? I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not a vegetable. How do we come to equate fruits and vegetables as if they're equivalent? I mean, it depends, right? Um, so, so we've been subject to a lot of marketing. It goes back many years. Doctor Fed, you would have talked about um, the, the cereal industry and how that transformed breakfast and transformed what we thought was healthy. But of course, there was a heavy moral. Um, same thing comes through to our advisory guidelines. A lot of people involved in that are, in fact, out of that same uh, faith community that Dr. Fetke and Fetke talk about. Um, and on top of that, we have this environmental movement, the same sort of vibe in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And we have these pastors who are telling us, you know, the world's going to end in 10 years or 12 years. And, you know, we've got this population bomb, you know, getting population in India to a terrorist, to a, to a, to a national security threat. Yeah. Um, and, and these people were making outlandish claims. They influenced policy on a number of levels, which impacted human lives in a very negative way. Uh, women were unwittingly sterilized as part of our enlightened food aid programs because we needed to get them to implement population control before we give them food. And so we had women sterilized without their knowledge or consent. Now, I notice they tend not to be from the ruling class, which is interesting. They rarely are. So once again, the wealthy are able to continue their lives. They just impose these ideas on those of a lower stature in society. So there's a you know, sort of social justice aspect of all this. But the people that were making the pronouncements that led to the policies that led to the uninformed sterilization, they, they've been wrong in virtually everything that they've ever said. And and that's the history of the people that make these dire predictions. Uh, and you can go back and look at the history of them, which is amusing, depressing, depending on your mood at the time. Um, because 
uh, the, the best one that I can come up with is the Great Horse Manure Crisis of the eight, of 1893 or whatever the year was. It was in the 1890s. And horses were the major means of transportation within urban areas. And so New York City was a very unpleasant place because of the tons of manure and rivers of urine that were excreted by the transportation system at the time. And you had animal cruelty, mistreatment of animals. You had animals dying in the streets. Um, it was it was a mess. Uh, people were getting injured by horses um, in the summertime when the manure in the streets dried out. It was pulverized and aerosolized and it became airborne and would float into your window and settle onto your food. It was lovely, uh, but it was all organic, <laughs> so it's good. Um, and so some people said, you know, if we don't find a solution to this in 20 years, manure is going to be to a second story windows in London and New York, whatever. And so they convened a, a, a group of worldwide world experts came to New York, which takes a bit of doing at the time, right? So they're going to spend whatever time they need to solve this problem. And none of them could imagine the internal And within a relatively short period of time, the internal combustion engine had done away with that. But we, from our perspective, only look at that. We tend to only look at that in the We don't look at what that enables. I talked to your part of the world is far better about uh, grassland farming. Um, the attitudes tend to be far more progressive than they are in the United States. Uh, we're still using varieties that were released in. 1930s and 1940s, <laughs> uh, which is crazy, um, you know, especially when you think about all the advancements that have occurred in other aspects of agriculture. Um, I have a picture of a stationary thresher. Mm -hmm. So we've got the steam engine. You know, it's on wheels, but it's stationary at this point because you've got the big flywheel and now you've got a big belt that goes off of that and maybe 30 feet away this belt connects to the threshold mm -hmm. so you got people walking around this is a guarded belt i mean it's just there and and so then you would go and bring the shocks of grain out of the field and you would throw it through the thresher to re separate the grain from the, the, the straw and the chaff, and then the straw they were piling up into a large stack. And so there's got to be, you know, 12 men working around this thing. Uh, you've got several horses that are, you know, drawing wagons or hauling off the sacked grain. All of that's renewable energy, of course. But it's hard work. It's not, you know, there's there's a there's a penalty to that, and and you know modern uh, power sources have freed people from having to do things that used to require 
people to spend their lives doing that. Okay, let's weigh those. Why, why do people from the country tend to sit? There are reasons. And, and people who are overly romantic about living in the country, um, we, we, you know, romance is fine. Don't confuse it with real life. Um, we might, we might need to, to sort of relook at some of those things. So, you know, we in the United States can go into a store and pay less of our disposable income for food than anyone ever has anywhere. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there I wouldn't recommend eating. But we're still free to make the choice if we're informed properly. Mm. And, and uh, you're probably familiar with Dr. Ted Naiman. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's shared this enough times. Um, he had a patient who, even though he's homeless and living in a tent, and yes, I'd like to know more about that, right? There's a story there. Yeah. But, but um, he ends up going to our local supermarket buying the cheap 80 20 store brand hamburger, 80% lean, 20% fat. Mm. Um, he buys eggs that are the cheap store brand. Often they're giving them away. Oh, wow. Um, um, and he went to a secondhand store. He bought a used cast iron stove. He cooks on a butane stove. He's paying $6 a day for food and fuel. Mm. And that's what he eats. And in a year or whatever time it was, he dumped like 70 pounds of excess body weight and he normalized his blood fat. $6 a day, food and fuel. So um, if, if we know what it is, if we can get better informed about what it is we're trying to do, how to measure success, and give us effective options to follow, right? Not but let us know that if our problems are high, high and you know, we're low, and we're judging glucose is high. I probably need to look at to our carbohydrate. Where are you going to get your from? And you know the story of, of put it together, however it fits for you. Mm. Um, I think one also thing you said is that the most valuable thing you can do is look after your health, because if you're not here, then especially if you say you've got three three children, then they're in dire straits. And it's something that I wanted to harp back to because that's part of the reason why I love getting health professionals on this podcast is because if you're a young bloke, especially, um, you need to look after yourself because you're not only a resource to yourself, you're a resource to those people in your life. And if you're, not, if you're wasting resources, then you're not efficient and then the people that you're influencing aren't efficient. And then if you're gone, they're less left with this inefficient system to try and build back together. Indeed, I mean, we have worth and value. And, and the being as healthy as we are capable of being, given the vagaries of fate and, and benefits and straight effort, um, and we're, we're not falling short and if, if we're limiting ourselves in that way and it's hard to say that when it's a matter of just ignorance we just don't know how to do that but um, then once we 
do learn to do better, then it's on us because we can't. It's, it's not the doctor's responsibility. No. It's our responsibility. Um, and, and again, as, as you pointed out, I mean, if you have, we all belong to communities. Mm. The community is your family. It's, it's the people in your area. And then we can blow that up. Um, that the cost of obesity related disorder in the United States, which I have one citation, does it equivalent to like 0.3% of GDP in the United States? Low money. 1.7 trillion US dollars. Uh, all of farm income, farm and ranch production, right, going off the property. That's one. Of GDP. Giving and giving the country one percent GDP. That, that that's the contribution. Yeah, yeah. It's one percent of GDP is is the farm gate value of production. So that gives you an idea. There's an order of magnitude, essentially, difference. Yeah. Um, and then somewhere halfway, five and a half, is the value of the food and agriculture industry. Which would include the farm game. Mm -hmm. So now we're in twice. So there, it's an enormous cost. It's an enormous burden, um, and it certainly seems to me that the case can be made that we need to be eating more animal products, not less. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about the ecological advantage of producing ruminant animal products as opposed to others that are not anti-poultry or fish. I, I, I enjoy them all. Uh, human beings have eaten anything that hasn't eaten them first, so I'm willing to carry them. But there are differing impacts, and so too often people talk about meat as if it's a uniform commodity regardless of what species it comes from. And they talk about the impact of animal agriculture as if it's all equivalent. And they talk about agriculture's impact. Um, the figures in the United States talk about greenhouse gas emissions because that tends to be on most people's minds. And it's certainly the one that's being used to argue against animal products in the but all of U.S. anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, all of agriculture, is somewhere around 9%. Mm. Not 40. Not, 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 no, 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 no. At one point, it was over 50. And then there was the livestock shadow that said it was, oh, it was 18 and a half. Then they had to admit that that wasn't fair, and and that's where we get this. It's more than transportation, which isn't true because they didn't do a fair apples to apples comparison. Um, it's it's now more like somewhere in the fourteen percent range, and um, but in the U.S. where you have a developed economy, right, and and nine uh, percent is is agriculture's contribution, animal agriculture is for beef is about two. Hmm. So that's the 
best estimates that we have for actual greenhouse gas emissions. Then if you look at beef or any other ruminant animal, the knock on them is because of this fiber digestion process. The more fiber they're consuming and the lower the digestibility of that fiber, the more methane they belch out. Hmm. So the higher the quality of the diet, the less they belch. Um, but that methane is carbon that's coming from the food that they ate, and that food got its carbon through photosynthesis, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, fixing it into dry matter that the animal ate. So now there's a couple things that we need to look at. One is that methane is gonna break down within 10 years back to CO2. Mm -hmm. So it represents a slight thing in CO2. So that's one thing. Number two is when a plant grows, a grass grows and photosynthesis, through photosynthesis, out in people, out the dry matter is produced below the soil surface as above the soil surface. So, and, and when you graze that plant, you don't eat the roots. Uh, so the roots are left in the soil. You also don't eat all of the plant, right? You mm, take yeah. half, you leave a certain amount there, that's leaf litter that stays. So yeah. the amount that's fixed, the amount that's eaten is a small portion of the amount that was fixed. Mm -hmm. And then when we graze to foliate a grass plant, we can do it with cutting or grazing. The root system that's there is no longer needed to support that smaller plant. That plant now has to try to regenerate itself. Mm -hmm. it's, there's a certain amount of sloughing of roots that takes place. So that's essentially a pulse of organic matter into the soil, mm -hmm. which is carbon staying in the soil. So now we can think about this process and it's not hard to at least imagine grazing animals as being carbon negative. Hmm. So again, the story is a little bit more complex than we've been told. There's just a recent paper out in the upper Midwest that said, okay, we're going to look at finishing systems for beef in the upper Midwest. And they looked at four years of data of carbon in the soil. And then they applied some other factors because every region of the United States is a benchmark for the beef industry. So we now look at environmental impacts in those areas. So are, the, are, these, um, are these animals being finished on soil or on, on a pad? Um, or they, they looked at both. Yeah. And what they said was um, when the animals are grazing, mm -hmm. they have a higher rate of emission than when they're in the feedlot. That gets mm -hmm. back to what I just said. It's a higher, it's a less fiber, higher digestibility diet, less methane is produced. Um, but under the grazing management, that they applied and measured over four years, the carbon that was sequestered in the soil more than compensated mm. for the emissions of the cattle while they were grazing. 
Okay. So, so this is starting to look like a really good story now. Um, you know, upper Midwest, you can't raise 12 months out of the year. So those cattle have to go somewhere. The more we look, the better the story gets, but we've got to get better at telling the story. Yeah. And is that where you come in? You know, you, you're sort of seeing like the backhand defense for the, um, in terms of the health sphere, in terms of this low carbohydrate, um, even to the extent of Sean, this kind of argument who's, you know, he's, he's, he's battling in the spectrums. He's one end and it's being, being thrown 40% of emissions every single day and you know, that he, that he's an evil person every single day. Are you sort of the back end defense of, he's a little bit more nuanced and, and knowledge and information about how this is not just an isolated production system, it's it's a cycling system and it's a turnover system and you know, it's actually a sink. <laughs> is that, do you feel that's how you've been brought into this, this sphere? Or? Well, I, I guess when I, so, you know, I graduated from university in 86 and joined the faculty at the local university. I left university in 92, was out of agriculture, so it wasn't until 2011 that I came back into agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, so that was four years after, essentially, after I had started on this health journey. And, and what I, along the way, I again, was learning from all these people, but then I would hear things that just didn't align with what I knew from what I was trained to do. Yeah. And, and I'd like people to know that bit because I think it's really important to know in the big scheme of things. So then I got the opportunity to introduce my agricultural tribe to the dietary and health message. And so I've been trying to introduce those tribes to each other because I think that's how we make some real progress in this. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to extend the conversation about sustainability from grazing through graveyard, hmm. from pasture to plot, right? I mean, if we're not... But the first quote that I came across was, if somebody's talking to you about sustainability and all they're talking about is... is if they're talking about environmental without talking about ecology, yeah, that's a red flag. If they're not also at the same time considering societal factors as well as economic factors, then we're not really having an honest conversation about sustainability. And there are these working groups around the world that are trying to get their hands around this issue of sustainability. Mm. Um, and now I'm getting the opportunity to talk to them about well, have who informs the, the matters of what constitutes a healthy diet. Where is that information coming in? Do, do we have an opportunity to bring some of this newer information into the conversation? How that would change things? So that's very much how I came in, and uh, I'm now in of trying to. To, to get people that I trained with or was trained by to hear the same message that I'm convinced is transformative. Mm. Yeah, it, it's great that you, you say there that, you know, the, it's not just passion to profit or paddock to plate, that it's, it's you know, plant to, to plot where you, where you end up eventually. And, you know, the agriculture industry is 
you, you mentioned Impossible Burger, you know, they're constantly hearing from people from the likes of KPMG that are looking at the economics of, of agriculture and, and its influences and threats. But I think they also needed to take stock of the fact that there's a reason this is such a traditional industry and, you know, they're not just putting food on the plate. They're, they're as you've just said, creating a sink for what this the city who consume their product is, is producing and you know there needs to be a lot more pride in in the sector of the world you know it, it feeds the world and and i think coming from new zealand i'm lucky in the fact that it's constantly harped on about you know for our small population we feed this vast array of people and and you know you, you see lots about the mental health of the agricultural sector and the pressures of the agricultural sector and and rural communities falling apart but I'd just love to instill some some pride in, in what they're doing. And, and like you said, there's a lot of blood, sweat, effort, and many tears go into to a, to a day in agriculture. And so you can romanticize it. And I'm loving to see the rawness of many people that are going back to agriculture and you see their first few days, they are in tears. They're like, I can, cannot believe this. Um, it's, it's hard work. <laughs> well, indeed. And, and um, so, there, there are a number of crises within the farming community, and, and you, you mentioned or alluded to some of them. And to the degree that um, well-nourished human beings can understand the stress, right? And, and I go to farming, you know, I go to a lot of agricultural conferences, and the stacks that are served <laughs> And, you know, the statistics that you think about the general population, they pretty well reflect the farming population. Talking about farming, we're talking about family enterprises, typically multi generational. Yes, yes. In the United States, access to health care is an issue, and mm. insurance is an issue for the business, for the employees that they may have. So I see this as a real um, opportunity, a real win win for everyone, um, in part, just as you say, to try to put a better um, light on value of what you're doing in the livestock um, you know, the idea that you know we, we didn't evolve to eat meat we evolved because we ate meat that this goes a long way back in human history and it's only been relatively recently in our history that we developed the crops that we have today although evidence of domestication of cattle and sheep and goats goes way back mm -hmm. um, and and so this this has been part of our experience we of course have advantages today um, that would be undreamed of for great-grandfathers mm -hmm. um, and and but but we owe them i was just listening to a lecture that talked about sacrifices that were made by previous generations so that we might stand where we are today and and um, that's part of the passion as well is is to give people a, a better sense of what's actually happening and and to let people know that if they're restoring their health on a solely animal product diet or a diet that contains more than for us on the planet, you need not feel guilty for restoring your health on that kind of diet. One, your health is more important than two, you're not ruining the planet. And number three, you're not going to get 
through heart disease and all your bones and morals, whatever thought is that you're going to keep your being um, There was, um, well, they've done some calculations. So there's this thing that we call externalities, right? So try to find additional things. Haven't considered this. Well, there's costs and benefits, and so people working within the beef industry in the United States have tried to look at those benefits to the environment of what happens. Things like fire reduction. If you don't graze grass, it grows up and becomes a fuel source. We have cataclysmic fires. Um, we, we have the health of the watershed, so we have better water quality, we have wildlife that benefit and coexist with production systems, we have people that can go out and use forest or grassland that's being managed for recreation. So there's a certain amount of benefits, they come up with a figure of like 30 cents a pound. Mm. And that's before we've ever addressed the polygons. So what do you think it might be? Yeah. I mean, once, once we can start accurately weighing the benefits along with the costs, there are costs, there are things that we need to figure out how to do better. Um, you know, I talk about the role of 2050, which is just 31 years from now, right? Two billion people is the projection. Uh, 66% increase in demand for UN is saying now, one, we should be careful because probably based on their assumption of how much they should be eating, mm -hmm. right? It's supposed to maybe they should be bigger to get a bigger increase. Um, but we're losing for a small amount of air surgeons and suitable for the production of those crops, something like 4% of all birth surgeons. Meanwhile, rangeland permanent pasture is something like 14%, and forest is another 10%, or again, we can have some kind of a system. So almost by a factor of eight, if you put those last two together, we have more land that can be in some kind of agriculture system. And, oh, by the way, they can also be reintegrated on that crop land. And so we're seeing some very exciting things for people after, say, the corn is harvested, they have crop that covers that soil to protect it, to keep something growing in it, um, to in water erosion, and then animals can graze that later in the season. Uh, it was just in Idaho um, a week or so ago, and where they would typically be feeding hay for six months. Mm. They were starting in November. They were getting to the point where they figured, yeah, we're probably going to have to start feeding hay next. So they've taken it from six months to two. Mm -hmm. That's an enormous cost savings for them. And it also represents a tremendous opportunity for uh, improving soil quality, improving productivity, water quality, all those issues. On ground that's going to be producing commodity crops for the foreseeable future. But just a different way of doing it. Yeah, that um, you know, under undersowing and, and <clears throat> no-till lifestyle. You know, something when I was doing a, a denology course, it was you know 
heading home and, and it probably goes to the fact that most deer farming is done on um, less than ideal hill country and you know there's there's plenty about the way that you you want to um, sow those crops and, and you know where I'm from in Southland it rains a lot that's why it's good for growing grass but at the same time it also stops grass growth because not enough sun and, and, and there's too much rain um, but again it's it's about keeping the the cows and the animals on on the paddock here and grazing them in a certain manner that you know water is a hot topic in New Zealand at the moment making sure that you're not influencing the water you've got these riparian plantings and, and all those sorts of things which again adds to the ecology of, of the world and another p2p uh, there's a lady on Instagram called piglet to plate she's just she's one of these people that's just gone into farming um she's on a goat and, and, and pig farm and she was out in the in the paddock somewhere in the UK and and you know they've got all these old established trees along the fence lines and there was birds everywhere and, and green grass and happy goats out in the paddock and you just I guess it's the, the concern of urbanization of the world is we've, we're so far away from that and all, when all we see is you know a, a slaughter board and say this is the reality of farming you know it's not the reality of farming uh, it's not the reality of of the livelihood of animals and farmers are every day working towards keeping those animals alive it, it's the value of those animals that it's the livelihood of, of what they do <laughs> and feeding them and like you say, grass-based living, they're, they're growing grass to, to support an, an agriculture. And, and when I was in Sydney at the International Grassland Conference uh, six years ago, um, I listened to a gentleman talk about dairy farming in Tanzania. Wow, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, only a few cows typically managed by women and are somewhere else okay. <clears throat> cut and carry yep and their animals are in confinement <laughs> for their own good um because there's stuff out there that would eat them um so that kind of made me you know kind of take a, a re-look at, at uh, the realities of, of how we manage animals but again if some of these operations have been in business for a couple generations the animals are a multi-generation result as well they're the product of breeding decisions that grandfather might have made when he bought you know an, an angus bull from mm. some source and and began improving the cows that he had people don't understand that just as stress is bad for humans mm -hmm. it's bad for animals and the same things happen and if you don't it, it, it's it's as foolish to manage with antibiotics and, and try to overcome bad conditions and bad nutrition in um, animal agriculture it's as bad as trying to do it in human health and, and welfare the same things apply um and Margins are tight, and you know you're, you're, it's hard to to make profit, and you don't make profit from stress, poorly nourished animals. It's just not going to happen. Nor from land that you abuse, and and the land. I'm talking to some people the other week, and saying, you know, people look at agri at farmers and ranches as if they're these extractors. Mm. Right, that 
and, and, and they don't understand that this was, this is my inheritance from my father. And I hope to pass it on to my children. I'm trying to make sure that I leave it better than I got it. Um, and, and when I have a chance to talk to people that, you know, this, yeah, we're the fourth generation on this land, I'm just going, what is that like? Mm. You know, <laughs> what's, uh, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. And, and I, I think a lot of the people in modern America don't understand either because we've become so open and, and, and rootless um, that we don't have that sense of, of place and uh, community in that way. So, um, and, and the other side that should be mentioned is many times people end up eating this product themselves and feeding it to their family. Mm. And so, you know, if, if they weren't convinced it was safe and wholesome and healthful, right, would they do that? Right. So these are people that know a lot about what they're doing and they continue. So um, again, just trying to get people to, what is it, the secret of it only when this is like the, that's it. So we get overwrought about things that I'm not sure are that important. We get very certain about things that are very poorly documented. Um, we fall sway to yet another narrative that promotes a product. Oh, that's a coincidence. Um, that that you know benefits someone and not necessarily us. Mm. And we have something in front of us that I think would be so impactful if we could get more people to follow. Um, we we really should take a hard look about at how we talk about it, how we promote it, what other messages we attach to. Um, so, um, the visit to Brazil got me wondering, I mean, what's, what would be appropriate to those communities that I was being introduced to? What would be an appropriate form of that? Affordable, appropriate to their culture experience. One of the advantages of all the carbohydrate food is their shelf stable. They don't need refrigeration. You can grab it, eat it on the go. You don't have to cook it. But um, what would be appropriate? What would be, again, the appropriate kind of form? Um, and, and then there's all kinds of other things that kind of get interesting too. Um, I get introduced to the, the whole. I, I mentioned earlier difference between crude protein and true protein and, and it's, a, it's a significant difference and it, and it speaks to the value of products in the diet um, but when we take so so meat now we, we understand has a much higher value than beans do as far as a source of indispensable amino acids that are highly digestible but if we take meat and we process it to make bologna, or we ferment it to make salami, or we dry it to make jerky or milto, mm. right? Or we cure it to make bacon. We actually increase the digestibility 
of those amino acids. We can take the lower value cuts and we can improve their protein digestibility score by processing them. Now we've been taught that process needs well, maybe they're not. Maybe it's actually, again, increasing the value of that resource. And they're also pretty tasty. So. Yeah, that's something I've become mildly obsessed with is uh, prosciutto and, and maqueta and, and, and all those sorts of things. And um, I can't wait to get my hands on a, on a venison leg and, and give it a go. I'll, I'll probably stuff it up a few times, but yeah, I want to give it a go. Um, one of the things I really want to hone in on is, is you said about how farmers are seen as extractors, but if you look at a balance sheet of, of, a, of a farmhouse and you, you go to a farmhouse and you see a tractor that's been there for 40 years that, that keeps getting repaired, it's because of those inputs. You look at their balance sheet, it's their inputs. And whenever you go to, go to purchase a farm, and I've been looking at it, you know, how far away I am from purchasing a farm, what you get is the last four years of what's gone into that land, what's gone into that soil, what plant is, is there in terms of, of um, things to use, you know, what sheds and stuff like that, you know, when was the fencing done, um, what are the fences like, you know, it's, it's actually all about the inputs that make, make such an amazing product and, and making well, that yeah. efficient. Yeah, and, and, and somebody said that nature doesn't give us the environment we need to flourish. Yeah. We make the environment we need to flourish by applying, right, inputs. That, that, that's, that's, you know, and, and the environment is, you know, nature is not a safe place for us. We make, <laughs> we make it safe with our technology, with our inputs. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, again, we people have this romantic view of nature right up until the time they have to strangle the mountain lion with their bare hands. Did you hear about that? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Yeah, so somebody was saying, that I guess he's um, Taekwondo or some kind of martial arts, but he, I think this is true. I think they said that in his school or whatever somebody had talked about using it to defend yourself from animal attack. yeah now most of the application is you know, defending against human this idea of well maybe we ought to spend a little time <laughs> thinking about how a dog or some animal that you know could cause you great harm if you were out there without you know mr remington or mr winchester or Mr. Browning. Um, so, in any case, yeah. Um, it, it, I'm fascinated by the worldwide reality of what's going on. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, this technology is amazing that we can talk. Um, and I think that's for advantage because I don't think any neighbors can keep you know, they, they can stand their post with walls of breach on the other side. They're yeah. not necessary. Um, they're still, you know, doing their mischief and they're still going to be around for a while. Um, but if somebody wants to, they can access all the information they need to convince themselves. And part of my role is to just introduce people to some of that information. 
because you know, people aren't aware of something called meat science, for example. You know, the, the people that study muscle formation and function from a meat science perspective, uh, or or you know, not familiar with the things that I've been trained in. Uh, likewise, I'm not a medical doctor. Nobody should take anything that comes out of my mouth as medical. Um, but I am happy to introduce people um, and some things that they can read and consumers of healthcare. Um, so uh, it, it's an exciting world um, that we're coming at. It's a challenging one. Um, but I am optimistic and hopeful. And I think that we early on talked about the value of hope. That, that that's an enormously powerful. Um, motivator, uh, especially for people who have just sort of experienced that progressive decline, mm. who can all of a sudden see some of the things that Dr. Unwin or Dr. Fedke or Dr. Maiman report from you know, real life free living human beings who, just by changing what they buy at the supermarket and you know making some really pretty minor lifestyle changes, are able to affect this tremendous change. Um, I, I think that's the best good news, and then the news that I can bring to them is, you know, the, the, the agriculture that produces the meat and dairy products um, of whatever species you're interested in, uh, ruminant animal agriculture is the key to sustainable agriculture. Wonderful. And so when people want to, you know, they hear this and they want to hear more and continue to hear more, where do they go? They can find me on Twitter. They can find me on Instagram, both places under grass-based. Yeah. Um, you can find me on uh, YouTube uh, by my name, Peter Batherstead. Uh, lots of videos. I get interested in kinds of things, so you'll find lots of stuff there. I try to keep it organized, so look for the playlists and find your way through those. Um, but lots of the talks that I've given have been recorded and are available several podcasts as well um and then you can find me on facebook at grass health um and then you can also email me at peter.founderstead at gmail.com lovely thank you so much and is there anything to sum it up you've done a great job summing it up anyway but is there anything to leave us with i guess yeah a steak a day keeps the doctor away <laughs> brilliant brilliant um, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, Peter. I think we could talk forever. Um, and if you're ever in New Zealand, or, or yeah, probably New Zealand, by the time you get back there, um, be sure to reach out and hopefully we can, can meet up. <laughs> I'd love to do that. Thank you for the opportunity and I look forward to the next time. Yeah, and likewise, if I ever go to hunt those mountains in, in Oregon, I'll, I'll be sure to try and visit you. <laughs> Perfect. Lovely. Thanks very much, mate. Cheers. Stack a day keeps the doctor away. Simple and effective there from Peter. Um, but I also liked what he was talking about before we wrapped up there about hope. Um, there's plenty of hope that's needed at the moment, especially with what's going on in the world. And especially when it comes to your health, even if you are in a bad way of health, there is hope that things can change. Um, just like if you're in a, a bad way in any, anything, you can change something and create a better life. Thank you so much for sticking through the episode. I know 
some points there the audio does drop off and it can be hard to listen to but as I said I think it's really important for people to hear what Peter has to say and, and he does an amazing job of articulating some of the things that he's learned and of course his powerful N equals 1 experiment that you know he's turned his health around which is just truly inspiring and the more you read that's the case and many many others so yeah it's something that should be shared what I am going to do is attach a link to the Diet Doctor podcast with Brett Scherer that Peter was on. Um, they used amazing mics and it's something that uh, my partner Alex and I want to get started as she started her own podcast um, called Keeping Mum. And yeah, we want to get some podcast mics so that we can do one-on-one -on -one interviews with people and get really crisp sound. Um, and again, I think I might be getting a little bit of help from uh, Greg Lincoln if uh, he'll help me set me up with something that's really good and going to bring awesome quality so yeah make sure you check out the show notes as I said at the start I'll have a link there to Mark Lewis Wim Hof sessions um, I have a link there to the media mint from Greg Lincoln of course because he did such an awesome job with what we gave him and a link to the Diet Doctor podcast with Brett Scherer and Peter Ballastead because, yeah, I missed something. I'm sure Brett picked it up because he's a great interviewer. Um, Brett's a cardiologist and, yeah, he has a great podcast of his own and then now he started doing the Diet Doctor podcast, which is really, really cool. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by Waikito, W-A-I-K-E-T-0.P-R-U-V-I-T-N-O-W.com. That's Waikito with a zero proveitnow.com and that's to get your hands on exogenous ketones if you're in Australia, the US, Canada and East Asia. Just head straight to the website, pick what you like, whether that's doing a 60-hour fast with the assistance of ketones, whether you're wanting some keto cream for your coffee or you're wanting to get the benefits of ketosis in under an hour. If you're like me and play rugby and want to protect your brain from head trauma, if you're wanting to get a little bit of better, more efficient energy, if you're out on the hill or you like what it was designed for and you go and do a little bit of diving, exogenous ketones might be for you. If you've got epilepsy, they might be for you. Um, plenty of reasons why you might want to take exogenous ketones or just to support a ketogenic way of life um, or to get yourself into ketosis a little bit easier without being susceptible to the keto flu so yeah head over to the website if you are a kiwi like myself and you're in new zealand and you want to try it out just contact me on at stack vision on instagram or the waikito facebook page w-a-i-k-e-t-o this time and you can find the links to all the podcasts there um, and the same in my instagram you'll find the link in in the bio to the podcast website on itunes now anchor have updated their analytics and i see that most of you are listening to the podcast on iTunes. If you are, it would be absolutely incredible if you could give it this show a rating. And of course, if you've liked this episode, share the link with somebody else and tag myself and Peter in a post on social media. It's so cool seeing people enjoying the podcast and so cool seeing it out there. So yeah, get in touch. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with a couple more awesome episodes. Um, we've got two already recorded that are just absolutely wicked. So stay tuned, make sure you're subscribed, and we'll catch you then. Bye-bye.